please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we continue this study to hear from God's Word, what God would have us to know, to internalize, and to act upon in our life. 1 Peter 1. We're going to be studying verses 6 through 9, but we need to start in verse 3 as we read and get a, a head start because the context is so important, as it always is. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Father, we thank You for Your truth, Your Word to us. And God, I pray that Your Spirit would work through Your Word in our hearts and minds. God, to give us a greater understanding of these truths and a better application of them in our life. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what does it take to be happy? That's a tough question for many. It's universally recognized as a, maybe an important but very difficult question. Why are some people happy and other people not? One of the key phrases from the Declaration of Independence that most people remember is that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The framers of this country thought that one of the rights of people that government should not remove or interfere with in any way because they come from God, one of those rights is not just life and not just liberty, but pursuing happiness. But there is and has been great debate throughout the years since then what that means and what happiness is. Uh, how free should you be in pursuing it? Where do you find it? And philosophies and religions and even psychology have all weighed in on this question. Some of the popular answers include from the Dalai Lama, compassion which makes for uh, the brain function better to achieve a calm mind, and it brings inner strength. He says, um, I feel that is how it is, that, that that's what happiness is. Other sources from happiness come from psychology. Our, our culture has really bought into a lot of what psychology says because it claims that it is a science, and we'll leave that for another discussion another time, whether psychology is a science. But there are, by some counts, over 400 competing theories of psychology, all of uh, which you could ask this question from with different answers from different voices. And some of the loudest voices, some of the most believed and followed voices within psychology don't really even have any credentials in um, education or learning or licensing in any way. 
But there's no shortage of the five key sources to happiness, the four basic sources of happiness, the 13 simple ways to get to the source of happiness. You can find any number of keys and sources that you want if you Google them. Um, the one with the 13 simple ways, a very, very well-known lady who's been on the Today Show and, um, and Forbes magazine, Good Morning America, and Oprah, right? I mean, the, the, the pinnacle for, for where this comes from. That author gives 13, and uh, she's very well-known, but in those 13 ways, we won't go through all of them, 19 times she says either I or myself, including the last one, I give myself permission to be happy. So... <laughs> Where do we go to figure out how to be happy with all of those voices, all of those messages? Well, I propose we go to the one who created us in His image to find out what He says. We go to His Word. God tells us about real happiness in the Bible. And one of the most striking features of happiness that God tells us about is that it is independent of many of those key sources of happiness that people look to. And if we're honest, that we look to often throughout the week for our happiness. He says that real, lasting, deep-seated happiness, called joy many times, or rejoicing, these are synonyms, these are a lot of the same words in the Scriptures that are used, but it doesn't require security or autonomy or skilled and meaningful activity. It doesn't require health or engagement or connection to others or being good or any of the other sources touted by popular voices in psychology or Eastern religion or other philosophies. In fact, God tells us that real happiness, real joy is not to be found in anything here on this planet. Now, we know that that means that we're not saying that nothing brings us happiness here, right? That we're just going to walk around sad because there's nothing here that's of any use or any good, right? We're not, we're not saying that. Relationships and meaningful activity can bring some happiness, some joy to us. But that that evasive, perpetual, timeless joy, that elusive joy and happiness that so many are searching for does not and cannot come from anything that's temporary, can it? Lasting happiness, lasting joy can't come from anything that's not lasting by itself. The corollary to that is that nothing that is temporary should reduce or eliminate any kind of lasting, perpetual, timeless joy. And so if you and I find that our happiness or our joy fluctuates, well, then we can be sure that the source of our joy, the source of our happiness, is wrongly placed on temporary things. So here's what we're saying. True and lasting happiness cannot be found in me, because I change too often, even when I don't want to. It cannot be found from within. It cannot be found in other people around me who change. They're up and down, just like I change. And it cannot be in, in circumstances that constantly change. If we base our happiness, our satisfaction, our contentment, our joy on something inside of us or outside of us in the world, we're going to find that we're rarely ever going to be happy, at least for any lasting amount of time or true time. And when you're happy, those will be fleeting moments. Just ask anybody who plays golf <laughs> or any kind of sport, really, or depends on sports for their happiness, right? You can see it in, the, in a football game or a, a baseball game or something, right? I mean, the, cheer, the crowd is cheering and the top of the world happy, and then the next moment, oh, they're crushed, right? Just up and down, and that's, that's how so many live our lives. That's how so many of us live our lives. What should we base our happiness on? Eternal things, things that are lasting, right? Like what? 
Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to continue here in 1 Peter. We're reading and studying this letter to people who are experiencing a culture war, cultural attacks on their beliefs and on them for what they believe, before the official governmental persecution arises. And he's introducing for us the ways that we can endure all kinds of trials, whether they're cultural or governmental or whatever comes along. How do we do it? What, what bad things or terrible things are happening uh, when, they, when they do? How do you endure? Last week, we looked at verses 3 through 5, and we learned that God tells us through this letter from Peter that the proper way to endure trials, particularly persecution-type trials, is to praise God for His work in saving us. He's caused us to be born again. So blessed be the God and Father, the the God of Jesus' humanity, the, the Father of Jesus' deity. This God is blessed, which means all praise and glory is due Him. And so we looked at seven truths from verses 3 through 5 that make up the content, part of the content of that praise to God. Uh, We have been born again to a secure salvation according to God's great mercy, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to a perfect inheritance, as we are guarded by God Himself and by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. There is plenty to praise God about. In our salvation, that's just seven truths. Within our salvation, there is so much more we can praise God about, and there's so much uh, around us that we can praise God about for the world that we live in, for the bodies that we have, and for the health that we have for as long as we have it. Do you ever take the time to do that just by yourself? You know, just, uh, you know, I'm going to turn the TV off. I'm going to get away from Facebook or, you know, Twitter or any of that stuff. I'm going to turn it all off. Is that possible? <laughs> Does anybody do that? Have you ever done that? Just get, a, get alone by yourself into a closet, for instance, and pray, <laughs> or, or a room by yourself, and just praise God. Just, God, thank you that you are good, that you are eternal, that you are holy, that you are immutable, that you are all of the things that we know about just praising God. I mean, you know, if we praised God for everything about Him that we know, and there's so much that we can't even know because He's eternal, we would never have time to think about anything else, <laughs> and we'd never have time for worry. So he says, praise God, that should occupy way more of our time than Sunday mornings. But this morning, there's another way to endure trials, something else we can do, and it has to do with our happiness, our joy. Where is it to be found? Because it's not inside of us, it's not outside of us in the world, but it's beyond us and it's beyond anything in the world, and it is into the eternal sphere of the spiritual, specifically the salvation, again, that God has given us in himself. See, verse 6 picks up where verses 3 through 5 left off, blessed be God. All praise to Him. Why? Because He caused us to be born again. We don't just learn these truths. We take these truths and we act on them. So the first thing we do is praise God for them. That's where we start off. That's an active way to endure persecution, He's telling us. It lifts your mind and heart above anything else. But is there something else? Yes, verse 6, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. This word means to be extremely joyful, overjoyed often involving verbal expression, speaking it, and even appropriate body movement. Like, yeah! Who remembers those old Toyota commercials where they would like jump up and then they'd pause like right at the end, right? That's joy that we have in this. Here is where to find and how to have real happiness and joy. And it is possible, it's real, and it's lasting even during trials. This is not that false joy where we say, well, just try to feel better, brother, and have some joy, you know, 
just wink, wink, like you're never going to have it. We're not going to have it. It's not real. We tell each other that, but it's not going to happen, right? That's not what this is. This is real joy, real happiness. Now, he's, what he's saying here, this is not an imperative. This is not a command, like you need to do this. This is a simple statement of fact. It's the indicative mood. He says, you Christian, this is what you rejoice in. This is what we rejoice in. The implication is that, yes, in fact, you do have control over whether you're happy or not. Whether you have any joy, you can determine where that comes from and whether you're going to do that, and here's how. Instead of anything here on this earth, he points us to five eternal realities for true and lasting happiness and joy, no matter what happens, no matter what comes against us. Number one, we need, that's why we have this in the, we need to, even though he didn't put it in the imperative, we're going to put this in the imperative so that we can remember this throughout the week, okay? We need, number one, we need to rejoice for our secure salvation. You say, wait a minute, that's what we said last week. (laughs) Look at verse six. In this, you rejoice. In what? In everything that I've just said in verses three through five, not only do you praise God, not only does he do all praise and glory and honor, you praise him, you rejoice in him also. We rejoice in all that the Lord has done and is doing and will do in our salvation. You know, when we think about this and, and it consumes our mind and our heart like it should, what could possibly distract us from that? Well, trials can, right? <laughs> the difficulties that we go through can and do often distract us from the praising God and the rejoicing in what He's done for us. They call us to comfort ourselves. You know, I'm going through a rough time. I just, I just want to comfort myself. I want to do what I want to do, right? I want to, to feel better, to ease the trial. They call us to just get out of it, right? Just, just run away from the, the trouble. The trials can distract us from rejoicing in our salvation by tugging at us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. First John 2 says, right? I want something else than what God has. What God has for me right now is this test, this trial, uh, whatever this is that's happening, and I don't want that. <laughs> I want something else because I want to feel better. I want something more for myself. It pulls us away from the joy of our salvation. Because when we're going through something, we're supposed to be finding our joy in our God for saving us through that, uh, through all of the things that we're going through. But when we want out of it, we're saying, God, I don't want what you want. I want what I want. Let's put some flesh to this. What does this look like? Well, you remember that in Psalm 51, what David had wanted more than what God wanted for him was sex. It was out of the sin of lust and adultery for Bathsheba. It was compounded by the sin of murdering her husband. It was compounded again by the sin of covering it all up. And just a whole host of sin. And sin caused David to lose the joy of his salvation. He was seeking joy in what he wanted instead of what God wanted in sin. And so as he confesses to God in Psalm 51, and and he, he pours out his heart and his mind to God, he says in Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. See, sin kills, and one of the most important promises of sin, that it will bring joy, actually brings death, right? It's the opposite of what it promises, and David discovered that. He found that out when he was living a life of sin for a time. It robbed him of his joy, of his salvation. So he said, God, please restore that. Worry is another thing that can rob us of the joy of our salvation, right? In Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Jesus seeks to help 
keep us from that, to save us from worrying that would rob our joy. It says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Don't worry about all that. What do we do instead? We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, right? That's where our joy is and where our happiness and where our satisfaction is, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. As a prime example, you remember Martha, right? What was Martha doing when, when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and, and loving His teaching and loving Him and finding her joy there in Him? Martha was distracted with serving. We can even take a good thing like serving other people and become distracted by that. Let that pull us away from finding our joy in the Lord, in the salvation that He has for us. Isaiah models this for us, this joy in salvation. He says in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And it's interesting. I love that Isaiah connects righteousness with salvation. He's given us the robes of righteousness and salvation. Our salvation and the righteousness that Jesus has imputed to us in salvation causes us great joy. It's deep satisfaction and contentment that is accompanied by that praise to Him. This is what's true for Christians. This is what's available for Christians. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins, you say, I don't want any of the stuff that's in this world. I want Jesus more than all of these things, more than I want anything for myself. Then I find my joy in the fact that He saved me despite what I deserve. So we need to rejoice in our secure salvation. The next reality, number two, what Peter tells us here is we need to rejoice while grieving through necessary trials. In verse 6, while grieving through necessary trials. I want you to take a little minute here just to unpack this. What catches our eye is the paradox between rejoicing while grieving, right? How is this possible? We've heard people talking about the paradox of the Christian life, rejoicing through trials. And again, it's kind of that winking, like, "Ah, you know, trials, they're really bad, and you're just supposed to rejoice through them, and then they run away, right? (laughs) Because you're going to ask, how do I do that? What does that look like? How can you tell me that? Why is it missing so often in trials when, when we're going through difficult times? Why is joy missing so much? Well, as we've been learning rejoicing, happiness, joy cannot depend on events and circumstances. The way that you can tell is if when you recognize what happens to you, how you respond when difficulty comes, when trials come. Do you get frustrated? Do you get angry about it? Do you get sad about it or down? Why would we do that? (laughs) Nothing has changed about our eternal salvation, has it? You know, when the car goes flat, when the AC goes out, when, uh, you know, the, the a surprise bill comes, when our health, we're given, we're given a bad report on our health, you know, our joy is not based on ourselves or the events or the circumstances or other people. It's in our salvation, in our God Himself. Nothing about that has changed. So why would we get down? Why would we get frustrated or angry or sad? We're going to be seeing that trials are actually making us more ready for the salvation that God's given us and is going to give us. Sometimes we get down or angry because we have made events and people our source of happiness. But other times, trials hurt because they really do hurt. They hurt those close to us and they hurt us. 
See, God doesn't lie in his word. He's not lying here. There will be trouble, and trouble hurts. He says, we will be grieving through trials. What kinds of trials is he talking about? He says, various kinds. They're all manner. He says, multicolored trials. They come in every shape and size. They're tailor-made for each one of us. Something that would upset you wouldn't upset him, and something that would make her angry wouldn't bother you at all, right? Different things happen to each of us. These are trials, and these are difficulties that are coming, and they're tailor-made for us. And they're going to cause us grief. They're going to be difficult. When Jesus says that he came and he brought a sword instead of peace, division between father and son and mother and daughter, enemies are from his own household, that's difficult. That's hard, right? Those are real relationships and real difficulty. But our source of joy still doesn't change, and it cannot be made to depend on anything here that's temporary or it will be much worse for us. We can actually make persecution. We can make trial difficulties worse for ourselves when we look too low for our joy, when we look within or when we look around us in the people around us. We can actually make it harder. What God wants us to learn in the trials, we're not learning when we're looking to ourselves, right? We're not learning when we're looking around for something that I can do, something that I can buy, something that I can... <laughs> Um, someone that I can talk to that won't bring real joy. When we have everything good, all too often we turn away from thinking about what God has done, who He is. We think, I've got this, right? When trouble comes, if we continue to look around us for help and satisfaction, we're wasting the trial because we're not learning the lesson. So if we learn to look to our great God right now when the trials aren't here or even during the trials, we'll be a lot better off even during hard times. This is what we're seeing in Peter here. Let's see this in Hebrews. I want us to turn over to Hebrews. It's just a few pages back in chapter 11. Because sometimes we think, you know, I don't do that. I don't fall into that trap. I look for my joy and happiness in the Lord. And, and, um, and you know, I'm sure that you all are doing a much better job than I am. But here's what I found in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is, is, we call it the hall of faith. You know, there's a hall of fame, and then there's the hall of faith, and Hebrews 11 is what we call the hall of faith. And and the writer of Hebrews talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Look at verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were um, tortured and refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Wow, what a hall of faith, right? That's, that's the kind of faith that I want to have, the kind of faith that will make me stand through this hard time and so that I'll see the mighty victory that comes, right? And that's what we do. That's what we look at. When we're going through a difficulty, we say, God, I want to see the mighty victory that comes. But that doesn't happen all the time. Look at verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Well, 
What was wrong with those guys? <laughs> Where was their faith? Their faith was in the Lord. Their joy was in the salvation that the Lord was bringing about, even if He didn't get them out of what they were going through, getting sawn in two, getting stoned to death. Their faith was no less than the faith of those who had the mighty victories. But listen, the Bible covers about six to 8,000 years of human history, and all of the heroes of faith fit in one chapter. <laughs> Just about, right? At least they get a mention. But all of the rest of the people who had faith fit into verses 36 to 38. There were many, many more, so many more that he can't name them all who fit into verses 36 to 38. Now, their faith wasn't less, their joy wasn't less, they still had the joy of the Lord, even though they were enduring difficulties that they didn't get physical victory over. So, our faith and our praising God, rejoicing in Him, cannot depend on the outcomes of our trials. They can't depend on what happens as a result of the things that happen to us. Our, our joy has to be in the Lord and in the salvation, ultimately, and eternally that He's brought upon us and for us and to us because of His love. Our joy can't rest in anything here. That kind of helps us to see what we mean by that, right? You know, I, I'll have a lot of joy in the Lord and, and in saving me if He gets me through this, right? If He gets me out of this, if He delivers me from what I'm, what I'm hoping. Many times He does. Every day He delivers us from something that could happen, Right? I mean, a meteor, an asteroid, something could fall out of space and just <laughs> land on us. I mean, a car accident, they happen all the time, right? Praise God that it doesn't happen so often, and we just take it for granted. But when we get into trouble, sometimes we think, well, God, I just want to get out of this. I'll have joy, I'll have happiness when, I, when you get me out of this. But He doesn't promise that to us. Now, this is, again, the model that we have from Habakkuk. You remember Habakkuk at the end of his, of his prophecy in chapter 3? He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. He says, you know, if there is no food, then I'll panic. Is that what he says at the end of Habakkuk? Then I'll get really mad. I'm going to get really sad and anxious and down. No. He doesn't say that because my contentment and satisfaction and joy is not found in even my own needs being met. He says, yet, despite any of that happening, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of what? My salvation. That's where our joy is. That's where our real joy is. Not just Paul in Romans that we didn't look at, Romans 12. <laughs> Not just Habakkuk, but Jesus himself in, in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you. You ever been excluded because of Jesus? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. This is not, you know, I was being irritating and now people are mad at me. Oh, Blessed am I, I'm being persecuted, <laughs> right? That, this, is, this is persecution for Jesus' sake, not, not because I was worldly and I was sinning and I messed up and now I'm getting in trouble, no. He says, blessed are you when, this is on the, on, because of the Son of Man. He says in verse 23 there, rejoice in that day, and this is what Jesus says, leap for joy. <laughs> 
leap for joy when you're getting persecuted, when you're getting excluded, when you're getting reviled, when you're getting all kinds of difficult things happening to you. He says, leap for joy and rejoice. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. That was supposed to be praise the Lord. The volume on that is amazing, isn't it? Yes, yes, we really do find joy. We really can be happy in our God, in the salvation that He brings, even in trials, because our joys, our source of joy is not here, right? Our source of joy is not here. Okay, the other thing that catches our eye in this verse is the word necessary. Are trials necessary? I mean, is it really necessary that we have to go through things? I mean, he, he says if, right? Back in 1 Peter chapter 1 here, he says, though if, if necessary, you've been grieved. So are they really necessary? Do we have to go through trials? Stay here in 1 Peter. But go over to chapter 3, verse 17. Because it is a possibility that our sufferings may be God's will. It may be part of what God has for us. In fact, it is. Chapter 3, verse 17 of 1 Peter, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, we don't have time to exegete the verse here. Lord willing, when we get there, we will. But the, the if statement here is not whether it's God's will that you suffer. It is God's will that you suffer, but whether that happens to you or not, it's better to do that than for doing evil. Difficulty is something that uh, while we live here on earth, we should always be expecting. We should always be anticipating difficulty. We shouldn't be surprised when trials come, right? Look at chapter 4, verse 12, a few verses down, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We've got to get into our minds that, you know, it's not strange when difficulty comes. What's strange is how I respond to it when I'm surprised. (laughs) <laughs> That's what's strange. When I go, oh, what difficulty? Where's that coming from? The Lord says, if it's the Lord's will, we're going to go through it. We're going to suffer. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's no one who suffers outside of God's will. That's, that's difficult for us to think about, you know. God, what are you doing? Well, God's trying to show us, and He is showing us. He's not trying. He does show us, well, we're just trying to learn that our hope, our joy, our contentment and satisfaction and everything that's supposed to be consuming our mind and and heart and thoughts and feelings, all that is supposed to be directed at Him. Whatever happens down here is preparing us for what we're going to have up in heaven. It's supposed to be causing us to turn our eyes to Him, and then the things of earth will fade away. Don't fall into thinking. Now, this, this is the trap that we fall into. Trials are brought about, you know, persecution comes at me because people just hate me because, because I love the Lord, right? It's true that man hates God and, and man hates other people who are following the Lord. Jesus teaches us that. That's true. From a human perspective, that's what motivates them. But it's what God uses. We can, we can know intellectually, yes, trials and persecution comes because people hate Jesus and Jesus is in me, so they're going to hate me. But we don't take that out on them. 
We don't, we don't go after them. This is what God is using. It's from God. You remember Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, right at the end of Genesis? Joseph's brothers were, were worried. You know, he's going to hurt us now. <laughs> Dad's dead. He's going to come after us and, and kill us. What does he say? You meant evil against me. All the things that Joseph's brothers did to him, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God did it to Joseph for good. <laughs> you guys did it, but God meant it. <laughs> God was the one that brought it about. It was for good. If we fall into the thinking, you know, that, well, this is mankind that's doing this. This is, this is the events around me that are doing this, and everything's conspiring against me, and I, you're dropping your gaze down to a human and to a physical level, human to human, yet in that case, you know, I can demand that it stop, right? You, you stop it. I, I deserve better, Right? But if you keep your gaze on God, you understand that it's His plan that's being worked out. You're not going to demand justice for yourself before God because just justice before God is that we suffer forever under His righteousness and His holiness. Instead, we're going to keep our eyes on Him. We're going to trust Him. We're going to entrust our souls to a faithful Creator while doing good because this is what He has for us. And it's for His purposes to bring those about. They're necessary if they're God's will, and they are, so rejoice in them, even as they are painful. This is, this is how we can rejoice while we're grieving. Because even though they hurt, God is bringing about His plan, His purposes, His will. We think about it like an athlete, like an Olympic athlete. We watch the Olympic athletes when they're allowed to finally go on at some point, right? We don't see the grueling workouts. We don't see the diets, the food that they've eaten, the ice baths, the heating pads, the compression, eating every three to four hours several hundred or thousand calories at a time, consuming half their body weight in pure water every day, still finding time to sleep for eight to ten hours, performing through the pain for the goal. We don't rejoice because of the pain, but because of what God is doing through the pain. That's how we can rejoice as we're grieving. What is the goal? What is it doing? Well, that's the next reality. Number three, we need to rejoice because of our faith in trials. It's because of our faith in trials. What is the purpose of trials? Did you see here in verse 7, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that, that's a purpose statement, Here comes the purpose, the reason for it. What does that mean? That means that nothing is happening by accident. Nothing is happening that's outside of God's control. Nothing is happening just because it just happened to happen to me or to you. There is a divine guide for these trials, and there is a divine purpose for them, and we know that He is good, He is all-powerful and good, and He's bringing them about, and there's a reason. As we look at this purpose, it's God's purposes, not man's, right? Your faith through these, is something to rejoice about. Your faith came about in you because of God's work. Ephesians 2.8, grace, you are saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourselves. <laughs> he told us. It's not of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 4.7, we don't boast in what we've received, what's been given to us, right? Romans 10.17, faith does not come from me, but it comes from hearing the Word of Christ. Faith comes from God. So if I have faith, praise God that I have faith. But there are three other truths here about our faith in trials that cause us to rejoice. First, he says here in verse 7, in, in trials, faith is proven. In your notes there, in trials, faith is proven. 
He says the tested genuineness. The idea really is putting to the proof, putting to a test, putting it into a trying time. It's a good translation of the, the one word that's in the original. You learn the genuineness of something by testing it, an actual use. You know, if I, if I tell you that this vehicle is four-wheel drive, just take my word for it. <laughs> you can buy it. It'll be fine, right? No, you're going to test drive that vehicle. Let's find out, is it four-wheel drive, right? And you're not going to try to prove it wrong. You want it to be right. You, you, you're looking for the, the genuineness, but it needs to be tested. You need to know whether it's right. Temptation that comes at us, remember all the, all the tests that come at us, the, the trials that come at us are either a temptation that throws us or a trial that grows us. And Peter doesn't qualify certain types. He's, this, again, this is that, gen, that, that general term for any kind of trials, anything that's coming along, they're various, multicolored. He says you've, it's a test of genuineness. We've not arrived yet at where we're going to be. Hebrews 4 helps us and explains this. In verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 4, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We haven't arrived at God's rest yet. Until we do, our faith is proven while we're waiting, while we're enduring whatever comes along. Some of us want to prove our faith by what we know. You know, I'm, I'm going I'm to know more. I'm going to study more. But real faith is not proven by what you know, but what you do with what you know, especially in trials. When you see faith, rejoice because that's God working that out in you. Real faith is also not proven by how you feel. This is important for us. Real faith in genuine faith. He says, the tested genuineness of your faith, which you can feel. He doesn't say that, does he? When Gideon was chosen by God, <laughs> where was he? He's hiding in the wine press, beating out the wheat in the wine press. Can you imagine what kind of mess that would make in the wine press? <laughs> I mean, he's hiding in there from the, from the enemy. And God comes and says, oh, mighty man of valor. Was Gideon feeling very faithful, very full of faith at that moment? You don't worry about how you're feeling. Our feelings, again, they're, they're coming and going. They're up and down. They're, they're changing along with everything else. But rejoice in the faith that continues despite how you're feeling, right? I mean, rejoice in that. You know, I don't feel like believing. I don't feel like going through this. I don't want to go through all of this. But I'm believing in God, and I know that He's working out a, prom, a, a purpose, and I know I don't know what that purpose is. He's not telling me exactly, except that he wants me to be more like Christ. So I rejoice in the faith that continues despite how I feel. In trials, faith is proven and it causes joy. Okay, next, in trials, faith is purified. Faith is purified in trials, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Here's how ancient goldsmiths, we don't do it this way anymore today. We use chemicals and electrolysis and different things. But in the ancient times, they would take gold that was with all of its impurities, all the things that came with it, they would put it in a crucible, which is a container that can handle high heat. They put it into the high heat, and they begin to heat it up, and it melts, and all the impurities start to rise to the top. And so they would skim it off, skim off the impurities. The hotter it got, the more the impurities would rise, they would skim it off. And that's how they would purify gold. What, when they knew, the, the way that the, the, the person knew that the gold was pure 
was when he could see his own reflection in the glowing gold as it was melted. When your faith is purified by removing anything that doesn't belong there, rejoice because God is working to see his face reflected in you. He works this out in you. So then we're able to understand and agree with Solomon in Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold and the Lord tests hearts. He does it through tests to purify our faith. And when he's doing this and your eyes are on him, we can say with Psalm 119, 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. God's commandments and your faith are much more valuable. First Peter tells us that here, First Peter 1 more precious than gold. It's more precious than pure gold. Pure gold. Do you know what pure gold is worth? (laughs) At one point earlier this week, gold was at $1,777 per ounce. You know how much an ounce is? I couldn't, I don't know, what's an ounce? So I looked it up. I'm like, what can, it's .06 pounds. Oh, that helps, right? (laughs) Oh, now I know. No, it's the weight of a new old-fashioned pencil, the weight of, a, of an old-fashioned wooden pencil. That's an ounce. That much gold costs $1,777 at one point in this week. A slice of whole grain bread is an ounce. A CD for the older people because younger people don't use CDs anymore, right? But our faith is more valuable than $1,777 dollars worth of an ounce of gold because it's, it's, it's more than any kind of gold, all the gold. Our faith is more valuable, more, of more worth than that because gold perishes. It's brought to nothing. It's destroyed. What happens to it? It's lost or it's stolen. It's melted and made into something else. It never, it never stays or ne- remains what it is even though it's tested by fire. But your faith in the Lord will last forever because He placed it there. And he's purifying it, and that causes rejoicing. Faith is proven and is purified, and finally, in, in trials, faith is praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy. Here's the reason for the testing. Here's the purpose. Here's what we're after. That the tested genuineness of your faith may be found, or the word is discovered. Like, here's something you didn't know. Guess what? There's an element of surprise here. It's discovered. It's found to actually result in something besides sorrow and failing. It's found to result in praise, applause. It's found to result in glory. It's dignity and credit and honor. It's a reward given for the maker of something. These aren't prizes, though, that God gives us. You know, you earn these prizes. This is what God gives us when faith is no longer needed. He gives us the gift of faith. Now, when we get to heaven, we don't need it anymore, so He gives us these new gifts. How do we know this is for us? You've got verses in your notes that we can't go through now this morning together. Romans 2, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, each one will receive his commendation from God. It's commendation. God doesn't just give out condemnation, but commendation. 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. Look at those, read those verses. Our exaltation takes nothing from God. Has anybody ever seen the Mona Lisa? Has anybody ever wondered why that's so... (laughs) popular, so famous as like one of the best paintings. Ever. I, I've always wondered that. Why is, I don't, I don't see it. It's a painting of a, of a lady and it's pretty plain. Not, not her, but the, <laughs> the painting itself. But people praise it and they go on and on and on about it. Okay, that's the same thing. Uh, you know, we are the Mona Lisa. <laughs> 
God gets all the praise and the glory. Leonardo da Vinci gets all the, the glory for everything that everybody says about that painting, right? Okay, so God proves faith. He purifies faith and praises that faith. He, he gives it to us. He works it out. And then he, he gives us the commendation. He praises us for it when we get there. Uh, number four, we'll, we'll work quickly through this. I don't know what I was saying. I thought maybe we had a two-hour service this morning. <laughs> we need to rejoice because of our relationship with Jesus. Verse 8. It, we'll close with this one. We'll pick up verse, uh, the next one after, uh, next week before we, get on, before we move on. But take a step back here for just a minute. Realize that all of the truth that we've been discussing, all of the truth that we're learning, those, the seven realities, the five truths, all of these things, it all boils down to that we are also and actually fully rejoicing in a real relationship with a real person. This, this is all in a living being, God himself in the person of Jesus. You have not seen him, but you love him. You still don't see him, but you believe in him. You, you put your trust and your confidence in him. It's not a feeling, but it's factual and it is experiential. He's alive and he's real, and, and one day he's going to be revealed to all. He says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's still alive, he's still there, people just don't see him. And he's not going to just appear like he didn't exist, like he hasn't been existing. He's going to be revealed, and they're going to see him. But in the meantime, we know him and we love him. We rejoice with joy inexpressible. We can't even speak it. And glory that's, that's praiseworthy, it's a high status. Because our joy in him cannot be put into words because of a real relationship with God. Where, where's this kind of happiness? It's, it's only in knowing Jesus. Again, you've got more, more verses there. Jesus tells us specifically in Luke 10, don't rejoice that the, the spirits were subject to you. Don't rejoice in all the things that happened. Again, the outcomes of things. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what he says. Rejoice in that because we know Jesus. Well, there's much more we could say, much more we could work through, but um, we need to be rejoicing. Our joy needs to be in our relationship with Jesus. Our joy needs to be in the truth of what he's done for us, who he is, what he continues to do in us. Application, we'll skip down to that in our notes. Trials are necessary to our faith. If you're not full of joy today, take a look at where you find joy or happiness. Are, are you looking too low? Is it, is it too low? Is it dependent on yourself or something or someone in the world? We can control whether we're happy or not and where to find that happiness. The trials are necessary to our faith when God wills. You can have real joy through them, though. Because you know him, number one, who brings them. You know the one who's bringing them. You know he's good. You know he's powerful. You know, you know that he's perfect. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. He's not going to do it out of spite. You know him. You know him in a relationship. You love him. He loves you. Who brings them. Number two, whose purposes will succeed in them. He's got a, he's got a greater plan, a greater purpose. We don't understand it. We don't see it. We know the end goal is to be more like Jesus, but how's this going to make that happen? We don't always understand. But we know him whose purposes will succeed, and we know him who saved me, who saves me, and who will save me and you. We know this great God, and he gets all the glory and all the credit. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your truth, your word. Your word is truth. God, your son Jesus on this earth asked and prayed that you would set us apart by your truth. Your word is truth. 
God, I pray that you would do that. Lord, that you would set us apart and that we would remember throughout the week that we are set apart, that we are born again by your Spirit. And Father, that we would rejoice in that. Rejoice in all of the truth and rejoice in the person who is the truth. The Word of God incarnate, your Son. God, I pray that we would find joy, that we would find happiness. Lord, if we're down, if we're depressed, if we're anxious, if we're sad, God, we can find real lasting joy in the salvation that you've given us in Jesus. Father, we pray that that would be real in our minds and our hearts this week, that it would be true of us. Father, no matter what happens or doesn't happen, the things that we hope for that don't happen, Father, we know that we have real hope in Jesus, in eternal salvation. We thank you, we praise you, we rejoice for that in Jesus' name.